So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 28. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then till the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. For God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at, the, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection unto him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection unto him, that God may be all in all. Uh, well, once again, a uh, warm welcome to those of you uh, who are joining us at public meetings this week, particularly if you come regularly. Uh, good that you're still committed to be here in the uh, day before mid-semester break essentially starts. And uh, if this is your first time at public meeting because you don't uh, normally attend, or because you're not a Christian, or because you've just walked in off the street, or because you've been brought by a friend, we're really glad that you'd be able to be with us. Uh, what I'm going to try and do, uh, my name is Paddy, by the way, I'm one of the staff workers with the EU, and the EU invited me uh, over the last couple of weeks to then come and speak, uh, particularly about the Easter message in the light of uh, the topic that we're looking at at the moment, which is uh, how do we find our identity with regard to hope. So one of the things that I want to try and do probably over about the next 25 minutes is look at the text of the Bible that was on the screen. If you've got a copy on your phone or in your, in your you know, hardcover Bible, uh, by all means have that open in front of you. I'll put some of the text up on the screen as we're working our way through it. And the comment cards that are on the inside of your slips are a really helpful way to give me some feedback, particularly if you've got questions you'd like me to address. Uh, if that's the case, you'll need to give me some way of contacting you, either a mobile number or an email, that would be very helpful. 
Uh, I don't know about you, uh, you might be a Christian and you've talked to non-Christian friends about why you're a Christian, or you might not be a Christian and you've got particular objections about the claims of Christianity. Uh, I've been uh, doing student ministry for some time and part of my uh, job involves talking to non-Christians about Jesus. Uh, On a number of occasions when I've uh, done some sort of cold contact evangelism, just going out onto the campus and talking to people about who they thought Jesus was, one of the biggest objections that comes up, one of the biggest things that stops people from actually not just believing, but also even considering, is the assumption that dead people don't come back to life. I've been in a number of conversations with individuals, and we really can't get past that. Dead people don't come back to life. Therefore, I'm not really interested in anything else you're talking about. Because most non-Christians recognize that Christians believe that Jesus came back from the dead. But because that presupposition, if you like, is so firmly established in their way of thinking, they then, in some senses, refuse to listen to any other part or be persuaded, actually, of the argument. So one of the things that I'd like to do, particularly because it's Easter, a couple of days before Good Friday tomorrow and Easter Sunday, is look at the particular claim of resurrection. Because for Christians, it's a foundation of Christian hope. The claim of resurrection is unique to the Christian faith. It sits at the heart of what Christians believe. And I suggested to you when we looked at this particular topic last week, that there were four significant ideas that Paul was talking about when he looked at the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 that was read out for us. I've tried to highlight them in this particular section of the text in verses 3 to 5. The four key aspects that Paul had received that he's now passed on to other people as of first importance, which generations of Christians pass on to future generations of Christians and actually all who would would be open to listening and potentially believing are these four things. Jesus died in accordance with the Old Testament. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Old Testament. And Jesus appeared to many. These are four fundamental tenets of the Christian understanding about who Jesus is. Today, I want to focus particularly in part of the rest of Paul's argument in this sort of letter that he writes to the church at Corinth, to see how the foundation of Christian hope is found in resurrection. For in rightly understanding and appropriately responding to resurrection, do we see what it means to be human? And we see that by looking at the person of Jesus. We see it because it will rightly inform us of who we are, who we are made to be, and it will also give us some implications for how we should be living our lives now and into eternity. So the way in which I want to do that is instead of, if you like, sort of working exegetically through the passage, I've tried to uh, find four particular beliefs that I think you'll probably generally encounter. Now, if uh, you're here in the room today and you're sceptical about the Christian faith, my suggestion to you is that you probably hold some, if not all, of these four. If you're a Christian, you may have held these beliefs before you became a Christian. If you're a Christian and you've talked with your non-Christian friends, I suspect these are four commonly held beliefs. So these are the four that I want to work through. Firstly, dead people don't rise. I think if we walked out onto the campus as a big group, started randomly surveying people and said, do you think dead people come back from the dead? The majority would say no. Fairly commonly held belief. Secondly, Christian faith is futile. What's the point of it? Why do you need it? What does it do for you? Thirdly, death is the end to everything. I think we get a bit of a sense of that in our sort of lived experience. We may have known people who have died and they're not with us anymore. So death clearly is a finality to something. Reasonably commonly held belief. Fourthly, I'm in charge of my world. Now, I may be a bit contentious. 
We'll come to that one when we get to it, okay? Four reasonably, key, four reasonably broadly held beliefs that I think this particular passage that was read for us actually addresses and pushes back on to varying degrees. Oh, the reason why I've picked these four is because, well, it's particularly pertinent to Easter, isn't it? So this Easter time, let's consider uh, these claims in the light of what Christians believe and hold to be true. So the first question, dead people don't rise. What if it was possible for some zombie-like fashion, but sort of genuinely back to life, to be restored back into relationship? What if that was actually possible? What hope might that give us, particularly those of us that have lost family or friends or loved ones, either unexpectedly or those who have been taken away from us early? How might we live differently if we knew we were going to actually come back to life? I do remember talking to a number of people on the university and I tried to persuade them and say, if you had more than the sort of 40 or 50 years in front of you, if you knew you were going to live for another lifetime, even if it was another 40 or 50 years, or even if you thought you were going to live for much longer than that, do you think you would live differently? Surprisingly, many of them said, well, if I was going to have a couple of goes at life, then actually I probably would start living differently. Isn't that interesting? What if the dead could be raised? How might that reshape the way in which we make decisions now? But what might it also say about the person or the, you know, the scientist or the corporation or the country that manages to bring people back from the dead genuinely? They make the pattern for it. They're in control of it. What does that say about them? How would they use that power? Who would they be able to offer it to? At what cost? With what consequences? What if the dead could be raised? Well, the claim to resurrection that historic Christianity makes has a Jewish origin, which reaches its climax and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. For the Jew, they had held for many hundreds, if not thousands of years, that there would be a time when everybody, not just Jews, and not just righteous Jews, but everybody would be raised from the dead. All would participate in what was known as the general resurrection. If you are at public meetings a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John 11, Rowan touched on this in the story of Lazarus. Let me try and show this to you by looking at some of the passages in the Old Testament. I just, these are just a couple. I've tried to highlight some of the key ones. 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Sheol is the place of the dead. Again in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That sort of idea of personal resurrection, bringing back from the dead. Another passage in Ezekiel 37, this great passage where Ezekiel is told to prophesy to this valley of dry bones and he speaks the word of God to them and they rise and they stand and sinews and flesh comes on them and the Lord breathes his spirit into them. It's this metaphor, it's this vision of this great nationalistic resurrection of Israel. Look at the verse on the screen. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. A little bit later on, I'll put my spirit within you. You shall live, I will place you. There's this idea that those who are dead will be brought back to life. Now, Jesus himself taught consistently with this Old Testament trajectory that there would be a time when resurrection took place. John 5, we've not yet got to that in public meetings. I'm giving you a little bit of a heads up. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, 
those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice the all-inclusive nature of what Jesus is talking about. All who are in the tombs, not just some, everybody. I suspect that would be a fairly startling sight. You know, if you've ever, maybe um, when you're slightly younger, because you never get scared of anything nowadays because you're now, you know, in your early 20s. But, you know, uh, if maybe when you're in your early teens or sort of pre-teens and you sort of maybe walk through a graveyard at night, maybe it was a youth group camp. Our youth group leaders made us do that one year when I was in year seven. Freaked me out. Oh, you've all got good ideas now, haven't you? That really freaked me out badly. It was graveyard, it was night. And it only took one of them to just disappear and hide behind a gravestone and the rest of us were screaming in absolute fear. Could, could you just imagine what that would be like if all of the dead rose up? Like just sort of came out of the tombs and started walking around. And it's this all-inclusive nature about what Jesus is talking about. Not just some, but all. I see it also in John 11, the second passage, reminding us of a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's not expecting this immediate resurrection of Lazarus in the next few minutes. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus speaks consistently with the Old Testament pattern and expectation of resurrection. He follows the trajectory. Now, where does the trajectory of resurrection go? Well, it goes to the resurrection of Jesus in physical bodily form. And so this is what the early eyewitnesses have to say. So in Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. A couple of things to point out here. Notice in the beginning when uh, Peter's speaking about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried. Same sort of idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Jesus was both died and was buried. A little bit later on, where Peter talks about that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that's the echo to Psalm 16, will not let your holy one see decay. I suspect for many, if not all of those early eyewitnesses, the sight of a risen Jesus would have been bewildering, confronting, just shocking, amazing, a sense of disbelief. There is a growing realisation, I think, in these early days of Jesus' resurrection that what has actually taken place is consistent with Jewish teaching about the resurrection that it demonstrates the fulfilment of Old Testament promises about the resurrection, that it's consistent with Jesus' teaching about himself. In earlier, elsewhere in the Gospel accounts, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be handed over to the religious leaders, I will be killed and three days later I will rise again. And this Easter, that's what Christians actually celebrate and remember. Jesus being in Jerusalem being killed and three days later rising again. And it's consistent that Jesus in his resurrection is the first to be raised in physical bodily form from the dead. That's a bit of background information for how we try and understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15. To rebut the argument that dead people don't come back to life. See, Paul, the apostle, is a grand scholar of the Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament very well. He
He was raised and trained in it, and he makes two key points here in verses 12 to 15. Firstly, he recognizes that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you can no longer say there's no resurrection. And likewise, if there is no resurrection, it is not logically possible for Jesus to rise from the dead. Come back to the comment that I made earlier, some of the people I've met when I've talked to them about whether or not they're interested in finding out about Jesus, their first assumption is dead people don't come back to life. And friends, that is exactly the argument that Paul is addressing here. The point that Paul is making is that if Jesus has in fact been risen from the dead, the key claim of Christianity, then the premise that dead people don't rise is now shown to be no longer true. You want to try and rebut the argument that dead people don't come back to life? Point people to Jesus. Now this is a central part of the Christian faith. Christians don't deny that. They've been teaching that for thousands of years. They've been celebrating it at Easter time for thousands of years. It makes a huge difference if Jesus had died and not risen from the dead. Paul, I think, expresses one aspect of this, particularly there in verse 14, where he indicates that preaching is in vain if, in fact, Jesus has not been risen from the dead. It is a complete waste of time. And in some senses, in the same pattern as apostolic preaching, what's been happening for thousands of years in Christian churches regularly, Sunday in, Sunday out, what happens here in EU public meetings, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then friends, what we're doing is essentially just wasting time. It's in vain. If resurrection is not possible, if it did not happen, then what I'm doing here today is misrepresenting God and essentially deceiving you. But perhaps more significantly than that, as significant a thing as that is, those who have faith or trust that resurrection is possible also have another difficulty. The difficulty there is that it's in vain. Your faith is in vain. However, if the claim that Christianity makes that the dead are raised is true, then it does have significant implications not just for those who believe it, but for everybody. For those who believe it, call themselves followers of Jesus, friends, it ought to give us great confidence. Confidence that when we give testimony that that is what we hold to be true, that the man Jesus died and rose again, we can speak confidently with the assurance and in the pattern of the early apostles who were eyewitnesses and church preaching over the last couple of thousand years. We stand with them. For those who are not followers of Jesus, and I'm sure there's some here in the room today, the implications are similar. For you, friend, if Jesus did come back from the dead, and if resurrection is possible, and if the claims of Jesus are true, then one day you too will rise. Even if you don't think it's going to happen. If it's true, and the claims of Jesus can be substantiated, then you too will rise. And that ought to shape the way in which you approach who Jesus is and the way in which you respond to him. So perhaps the challenge for all of us, actually, Christian or non-Christian, is this. This Easter time, perhaps you need to reconsider the claim that dead people don't rise and the implications that that has in your life. Second point, Christian faith is futile. Uh, I remember another conversation I had with a a young man, very sceptical young man, uh, really only wanted to believe in anything he could see. 
He genuinely wanted strong evidence, strong proof, very scientific in his way of thinking. He would only believe in the things that he could see. He said, if you can make God appear before me right now, then I'll believe in it. I can't do that. I said, I, can't, I just can't produce God. He's not a little genie who I sort of rub and he comes out of a bottle. He's far more powerful than that. He's far more significant than that. The reason why the person was sceptical was because they really didn't think there was any value or any worth in the Christian faith. They ultimately thought the Christian faith was just futile. It was a waste of time. Why would it be a futile hope? Well, if resurrection didn't take place, it's a futile hope because you're believing a lie. You've put all your eggs in that basket and the basket is found to not actually be there. You're living your life trusting in something that's just not true. But for Paul, there's something more going on. In this particular passage, for Paul, the futility of faith is directly related there to forgiveness of sins. Second sentence, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What does Paul mean by that? If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Surely the death of Jesus is the thing that means we're no longer in our sins. Paul here ties resurrection, if it didn't take place, to still be in sin. Well, the Bible here teaches that humanity, both individually and corporately, stands at enmity or rebellion with God, consistent with biblical teaching. We refuse to recognise God in a relational sense, as our creator, our maker and our sustainer. We love the things of the world more than loving the one who made them, God. And the Bible describes this as sin. On many occasions, it'll manifest itself in all sorts of thoughts, actions and characteristics, sometimes that are obvious to all, at other times are only known to ourselves and God. But the problem is not just the outward expression of what we do, but with the inward rebellion and relational break between humanity and God. All of us individually at one point, and humanity corporately. Uh, on occasion, and I suspect this may have been true for you as well, I've disagreed and sometimes really argued with various members of my family. I think I'm right. I'm fairly sure they're wrong. I'm going to prove my point. I suspect you can relate to a similar situation, can't you? When this happens, and I think sometimes if we're the cause of the problem, as has been the case on a number of occasions for me, as I've been pointed out that I'm actually wrong, not right, the relationship nevertheless has been strained, there's tension, there's some anger, there's some hostility, and this causes hurt and pain, sometimes to one party and sometimes to both parties. Causes frustration, heartache. So what's required to restore the relationship? We're aware, just from our own human experience, that surely what's required is a desire that the two parties that are currently out of relationship with each other recognise that wrong was committed, that suitable forgiveness is offered and made and received, that a restoration occurs, and that there's a commitment to seek to act differently moving forward. We might think, isn't that great that we as humans can do that? Yes, it is actually, but I want to suggest to you that it actually is because God is the one who establishes that pattern. God is the one who rightly models what it means to forgive, to restore, to relate well to one another. Now, in the case of our biblical understanding of sin, this break in relationship, it's a problem, friends, that we can't fix. 
How can you introduce yourself to God and make an offering to fix the relationship because you're out of relationship with Him? You can't go to heaven. You can't walk into His presence. What can you give Him to appease Him? Not one degree from Sydney University? Not multiple degrees from Sydney University? Not $1,000? Not $10,000? Not a million dollars? Not... Not even if you gained the whole world and everything in it, would that appease God? In the end, God does the work for us. He's the one who seeks to restore the relationship. So what Paul is describing here when he talks about the forgiving of sin is the work that God does to fix the problem we have. Friends, this is the great message of Easter. This is the great offer of restoration, the great offer of reconciliation between God and humanity, which is why Christians go to such great lengths to celebrate it. It's a win. God is the one who restores relationship with His creation, you and I. But if Jesus didn't rise, we have two insurmountable problems with regard to our forgiveness of sins. And the first here is, the sacrifice for sin, I take it, would not have been able to be offered to God. See, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you remember it, there was a particular part of the tent where the animal or the offering or the, the sacrifice was actually sacrificed. So you'd bring an animal into the outside part of the sort of the, the broad tent in the Old Testament and you would shed its blood and then the blood would be taken into the altar and sometimes sprinkled on the altar. Notice there's two different things going on. There's the sacrifice for sin, and then there's the place where the sacrifice is actually offered. I wonder if what Paul's doing here is, consistent with the Old Testament, which, remember, is a pattern of what's going on in the heavenlies, according to Hebrews 9, and if you go and read Hebrews 9 about the sacrifice that Jesus makes and then offers, I think if Jesus did not rise from the dead, sure, the sacrifice is made on the cross, but he's unable to present the sacrifice, which is himself, in the presence of God in the heavenly realms. So if he dies and stays dead, sure, the sacrifice is made, but it is not offered to God. In which case, the sins remain unforgiven. We would still be dead in our sins. Secondly, sin would indeed still have the power of death. See, the penalty for our sins is death. And so if Jesus has not been raised, those of us who trust that His death and resurrection pay that penalty, we've got nothing to trust in. The penalty of death still stands against us because of sin. The power of sin has not been broken if Jesus has not resurrected, if He's remained dead. See, Paul's argument here is that Jesus' resurrection means forgiveness for sin has been made and is now available to all people. Now we understand and appropriate the resurrection as the means through which the sacrifice that Jesus offers of Himself is now made available to all people. Jesus' resurrection means forgiveness is now available. Friends, having a trust or a faith or a dependence in that, that is not a futile faith. That is a valuable and worthwhile faith because it achieves the forgiveness of sin. What do we see here? Thirdly, death is the end to everything. What are you hoping for in life? 
What are you hoping for in life? Maybe uh, next week when you're on mid-semester break, it'll give you a bit of a chance to reflect. Am I actually doing the right degree? I think it's a bit too late. Census date has already passed for this semester. Too late. I have to wait till next semester. What are you longing for? What are your plans for the year? What are you hoping will fulfill all of your dreams and aspirations? If I could fast forward you sort of 20 years into your life, I wonder if you'd be pleasantly surprised. Or maybe really disappointed. Or maybe you'll go, oh, I'm still at university. So there you go, not much has changed. <laughs> what one experience, what one experience would make the biggest change to your life? So I thought, as is by my pattern before, I thought we'd do a little interactive exercise. Got a mobile? Take out your mobiles. Go to this URL. I've asked you one question. It's got, I think, six or seven responses. This is completely anonymous. I have no idea who participates. You, this is, this could, you could all just be on Facebook now, basically. I wouldn't have any idea. Well, I'll know in a minute, because I'll show you the responses. What one experience would make the biggest change to my life? So we'll uh, give everyone just one more minute to fill that in, and then I'll show you the results. And we'll compare you to the Tuesday and the Wednesday group, OK? A few, OK, well, what we'll do is we'll just go to the results, and then we'll... Um... <laughs> uh, OK. <laughs> yes, you can only vote once, too. <laughs> Anyone else? I'll give you another minute if you just click, click, one more. I think we've probably got everybody in the room, haven't we? Right, well, what this basically tells me is that, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the Tuesday group, for those of you who come to Tuesday public meetings, uh, the largest uh, proportion of respondents was knowing what to do after uni. That was by far the largest thing. Uh, the uh, Wednesday group, was uh, the trend was similar to your group, but not nearly as extreme, can I put it that way? <laughs> so this says a couple of different things to me. This, I won't say that, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, what one experience would make the biggest change to my life? Like, not uncommon, actually, for your particular stage of life. However, uh, if I may, somewhat flippantly say, what's the one experience that will make the biggest change to your life? The one biggest experience that will make the biggest change to your life is actually going to be your death. You realise that? Because what rightly, even if we don't like thinking about it or even if we don't realise it, it's actually the thing that brings all of life, it seems like, to nothing, doesn't it? All of our achievements working out what we do after uni, the relationships that we're in, all of them, and all of also the very close ones, the boyfriend-girlfriend ones, the ones that we, looks like, so genuinely desire. The biggest thing, the thing that makes the biggest difference is death. And that's just not good, is it? It sucks. It's just. And if we've had to experience that with someone who we love, we really feel it, and it hurts. For many people, they consider that death is the great conclusion to life. It's the final thing. And so much of life, I think, logically and consistently is then spent seeking to either avoid death or to try to get as much done before that one day happens. Trying to make the most of all of the experiences, trying to collect as much stuff, trying to see as much of the world. And my observation is that for many who seek to try and do that, their identity is just thoroughly caught up in that. 
the experiences that they reach for. Friends, if that's all life is, surely that's what you should do with life. But I want to suggest to you, consistent with what we see here, that death is neither the purpose of life, as in the end, meaning purpose, nor is it the conclusion to life, meaning the finality. See, Paul here in this part of 1 Corinthians recognises that in Adam, sort of language for meaning being human, following in the sin that Adam committed, means that physical death comes to all people. For rebellion and disobedience against God is in the world and is part of our natural being before we actually turn back to God. And this makes sense because the world is under the power of sin. But the consequence of Jesus rising from the dead is that in the man Jesus, we see that it's possible to be fully human and yet be brought back from physical death. Something that you and I can't do. Because in Jesus shall all be made alive. All will receive resurrection. But remember the words of Jesus in John 5. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, the purpose of life is not just to live, die and nothing else. What we see here is an expectation that humanity, but under what conditions? Life or judgment? So what hope will this give to those who trust in Jesus? I take it for those of us who trust in Jesus, in all of the difficulties, challenges, joys, the sorrows and the heartache of this particular life, there is more to just living and dying. It changes our perspective, actually, of what it means to be human. Is being human just about acquiring a whole lot of experiences? Or is it rightly recognising our place before God, our Creator, and living obediently to Him? We recognise the finality of physical death in bringing our earthly life to a close, and this is because we are in Adam. However, the hope of resurrection means that we expect to be made alive upon the return of Jesus. And friends, this ought to be a sure and confident hope. Paul encourages us here in these words in verses 20 to 23, that our hope shall be sure, and on what basis? On the basis that Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the first fruits. He is the first human to rise physically from the dead. And if it's happened to him, we can be sure and confident that it will also happen to us. Friends, death is not the end of life. Maybe this Easter is the season and the time to be reminded as you reflect on the person and work of Jesus that death is not the end. So, lastly, as you think back through some of the things that you might hope for in life, what hope do you have that you'll actually be able to achieve them? You may already be disappointed in some of the achievements in life. Maybe the ATAR wasn't quite high enough, but you still managed to get into Sydney University. Maybe the boyfriend-girlfriend thing hasn't quite yet worked out. That's what the survey tells me. And maybe you're still feeling a bit, well, why hasn't it worked out? What hope do you have that you will actually achieve the things in life that you hope for, that you desire? 
What about all the things that you sort of turn your hand to, to try and labor at? Do they all come to fruition? How's that going for you? The reality of life in our own lived experience and the experience of others is we don't always achieve the things we hope for. And sometimes I think it's because we have either unrealistic expectations about what it is that we can achieve, but I think sometimes it's because we think we're in charge. And if we're in charge, then whatever we do will actually come to fruition. But Paul concludes his little section here with a culminating point that indicates that a significant consequence of Jesus' resurrection is that Jesus has now been established as the ruler over the world. Remember I asked the question earlier, if life after death was possible, what might that say about the person who held that power? The person who was able to make decisions about who would be risen from the dead and who wouldn't. Paul here says that one of the consequences of Jesus rising from the dead, he has now been raised, seated at the right hand of God, he's been given authority to judge all things. Jesus is the ruler over the world. Paul elsewhere says this, says this in Acts chapter 17. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, to live differently, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given all by raising him from the dead. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that we are not in control of the world. And I think we know that in reality when we look out on the world. We look at the human events unplaying and we are genuinely not in control of everything in the world. Friends, Jesus is the one who is in ultimate control. And it's because he's been risen from the dead. The last enemy to be defeated is death. The thing that we cannot overcome. The thing that we cannot offer any payment to God for to overcome our own death. No, friends, the last enemy to be defeated is death. And this is the point at which all the dead are raised. The resurrection of Jesus confirms and establishes Jesus as the judge over the world. And so the question is, how will you respond to this man, Jesus? Friends, the message of Easter, which we do well to ponder and celebrate, is this. Jesus offers hope for all people. Hope that the physical death we will all face will not be the end. Hope that the penalty against us for our sin has been fully paid for in his death and his resurrection. The certainty of this is the eyewitness accounts of the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Be trusted. Well, Jesus made claims, some of them seemingly outrageous, yet all of them are substantiated by his actions. He claimed to be from God, he claimed he would die, he claimed he would rise. These things are all attested to be true. So why would you doubt the other claims made about him? What are the things that we place our hope in? The things of the world? The things we think we can control? The things that we aspire to and desire? Yet hope in the death and particularly the resurrection of Jesus affects every aspect of life, reshapes who we see God to be, who we see Jesus to be, and who we see ourselves to be and our place in the world in relationship to others. Friends, this Easter, why not consider or reconsider the claims of Jesus and ask yourself how the hope of resurrection will provide you with a far better and far more substantial hope for life 
in the here and now and for all eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time of Easter. We thank you that um, during uh, this weekend um, we can think really deeply about uh, the death of your son, but not just the death, but the great hope that we have um, in his resurrection. Um, Father, we thank you that because Jesus rose, um, we can look to that and know for sure that um, all of us too uh, will rise. Um, Father, I pray that um, as we think about this um, over the weekend, uh, may we consider how we uh, will respond to this, whether we um, are to... Uh, rise to judgment or to rise um, in the life that you offer. Um, and Father, we just uh, thank you so much that you loved us in this way, that um, you gave us your son, that we can be in a relationship with you. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen.